Thank you, ladies. It's just always a blessing to, to one, hear good music, but then to have the words of the hymn rolling through my head. And uh, I'm not sure if you knew, but Pastor was up here singing along. So I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. And it's good to be in the house of the Lord together. Some housekeeping. We have restrooms and coffee downstairs. There's a nursery for little ones, if you want to bring your children down there, the offering box is in the back. It's a gold chest. And what else could I tell you? Oh, two more things. One, we took up an offering for the for Ukraine refugees that are in Poland. And you can see in your bulletin that we uh, had almost $9,000. and. So I said, hey, can we round it up to $8,751? But I was overruled, so we're going to round it up to 9000 even. Uh, you guys are more generous than a 1,000 small churches, so I thank you. Keep praying for that situation. We are going through the Book of Ruth in, in adult ministry training class, also known as Sunday School Hour, and we're looking at God's providence, how God used circumstance, circumstances for his glory. And in Ruth, we see his hand very clearly. But they did not have the benefit of chapter 4 while they were going through the struggles. We don't have the benefit of chapter 4 in our lives. We just have to trust God as we go through this life. And Romans 8 is real, it's true, that everything works out for good, for God's glory to those that love him and were called by his name. And I would encourage you, as I encouraged our adult Sunday school class, God has brought you here today. Out of all the churches you could go, you didn't sleep in, you came here. And I believe that you're, you were you are here for at least two reasons. As my wife Gail would say, we need to practice the one and others. You are here to be a blessing to somebody else. So open your eyes and see how you can bless one of your brothers and sisters. Or if you're discouraged, if you need somebody to put their shoulder around you or to pray for you, you're here for that too, to be taken care of by brothers and sisters. We're a family, and it's, it's God's family, and this is our own individual fellowship. You're not an accident. It wasn't accidental that you're here. It's part of God's divine providential plan. So rejoice in it and worship him. That's it. Let's, um, in your worship folder, we have a bulletin, <coughs> and I just also want to say thank you for your generosity, um, particularly in mission giving, and uh, that's just um, delightful to see your um, care for others in, in giving, and um, that was very pleasing to hear your support for that, and uh, our friends in, in Poland that are uh, housing some folks, uh, this will really go a long way to help them um, 
And we do need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, who are essentially refugees or fearing for their life, but yet they're worshiping Christ today too. We want to prepare ourselves to worship Christ today in the freedom in which we have to be able to express that. In your worship folder, there's the little bulletin in there, and this week's verse is a really memorable verse from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Most of us are at least somewhat familiar with it. I encourage you to perhaps meditate on it uh, during this week. It talks about the fruit of the Spirit, which is really fruit as an expression of the nature of the tree. Um, it will take a certain degree of nurture for that to be expressed fully, and we're going to say a special blessing on ladies that nurture others in godliness. And here is godliness exemplified and something for us to think about it specifically, and I'll read it out for us, and then I encourage you to pray that godliness might be truly more expressed fully in your own heart, and that you would be prepared to hear and heed God's word even this day, and I'll give you a moment to pray privately where you're at, and then I'll pray for us corporately, but let me read the scripture first, and then we'll go to prayer together. Speaking of this fruit of the Spirit, it is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Let us pray. You first, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful that we were able to gather together as your people to worship your holy name. We do pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who in various parts of this world are struggling to do just that. But I pray that they might have some solidarity to know that we are praying and supporting them and that ultimately you are in providential control over all that goes on. And I pray that you would bring even these great difficult and destructive times to bring about faith in many. May many sons and daughters confess Jesus Christ as Lord. I pray the fruit of the Spirit would indeed be more exemplified in our life as we grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. May Christ be seen who is the indeed exemplar of all of these which is the fruit of the Spirit. I pray, Father, that you will conform us more and more to the image of your Son. I pray that you would receive our prayer, our worship to you, our reading of your text, of Scripture, and explanation of it even this day to redound to your glory and our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Nehemiah 9.5 says, Stand up, bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Let's take our hymn books and let's stand up and bless the Lord this morning. 137. Stand up and bless the Lord. 137. 
turn to 654. 654. Train a child in the way he should go. Proverbs 22.6. A Christian home.
Amen. I want to say Happy Mother's Day in your worship folder. If you look on the inside, I'll refer to that in a second. But to those mothers who cared for children in the in the past in a direct way, and to those that are currently doing so, and to those that will in the future, Happy Mother's Day. This is our cultural practice in which we recognize that, and I hope that each of you have um, good memories and thoughts and great celebrations even this day. In the church, though, my focus has always been to use this as an opportunity to talk about the centrality uh, of, of womanhood and femininity, which is integral and part of, and a key part of what it really means to be a mother and to express that in various ways and particularly within, within the church. Um, the, I have a recognition and sense what we're going to do for those that would express um, a biblical femininity. We want to pray a special blessing on you. And I have these, some young men are going to hand out some flowers uh, for you. So, and we'll begin with women who are age 16 and older, if you'll go ahead and stand, we want to recognize you, and then I want to pray a prayer, a blessing for you. And um, uh, it, it is a, a strange world which we live today that um, a Supreme Court justice nominee can't define what a woman is, even though that was half of the criteria by which she was chosen to fill that position, but I digress. <clears throat> in any case, it is a rebellion, and uh, from the biblical perspective, I'm reminded here in First Peter, it talks about uh, a, a woman and the beauty of who she is. Now, you ladies aren't standing yet, and these young men have to find you. So if you'll stand, I'm going to embarrass you, 16 and older, but I'm also going to bless you and honor you, each one. And if moms, if you have little kids in your laps and you need to sit, that's okay. Just raise your hand in that regard. Um, Peter talks about women who are beautiful and on the inside, respectful and pure conduct. And he says in 1 Peter 3, don't let your adorning just be external, is the sense, just the braiding of hair and the putting on of jewelry. You, you naturally do these things because you are beautiful. It's an expression of who you are on the inside. And he would go, let your adorning ultimately be <clears throat> the revelation of the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And though this is not very precious to many people in our day, as they're just essentially going insane and in not recognizing and really rebelling against the beauty that God has designed in his creation, both male and female, uh, each are important. And uh, we want to celebrate femininity. And as I wrote here in this um, in our worship folder, and you can find out a greater definition of it if you, w if you wish by looking at uh, the Biblical Council on Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, they, they have like a 400-page tome that will go through this in detail, re uh, explaining from the scriptures um, where this comes from. You can actually get a free PDF if you can download a file that big. But in any case, you can also buy, buy a book or research on that, which is good. But here is 
femininity, and I think this is a well-structured statement, the heart of fe mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways that are appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. There may be different times in your life in which you have different responsibilities, but always an expression of femininity is this root of nurturing. An example of it I put here in the text from 2 Timothy chapter 1 in which Paul recognizes the, the faith in young Timothy and he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. And he's teaching through the book of Ruth, and we'll go with providentially, Andy, he's downstairs, Andy, some flowers out, I guess, to some ladies that are downstairs, but in Ruth, I notice here in chapter four, this morning, when Boaz marries Ruth, she becomes his wife, and she had a child, and then the woman said, women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons that have given birth. Then Naomi takes the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And then it says, then the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And if you know Jesus, you know the rest of the story. You, you see how they were all involved in that process of nurturing. And so uh, here's a, just another example coming across that. Well, I'd like to pray for you now since I've embarrassed you enough and made you stand all this time, and I appreciate it. I just want to tell you how much I care for you and support you, but I can't tell you how much God does as well. And we appreciate your sacrifice, oftentimes behind the scenes, silent. But you will see the fruit of your blessedness. And when Gordon reads here in just a bit, I think he's reading today, uh, chapter 31 in Proverbs, uh, here is an uh, exemplar of this ideal of womanhood uh, in, on display. And pay attention to that when he reads. But let me go ahead and pray a blessing on you today. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the women that you have brought to this church. I pray for each one that you would bless them, keep them, make your face shine upon them. I pray the beauty that is hidden within their heart, the, the, these that are regenerate, who love Christ, I pray the, the fruit of their beauty might be displayed in the beautiful ways that they demonstrate love, sacrifice, as they show grace and faithfulness. I pray that a deep-seated joy would be expressed from their heart, that indeed that joy might overflow into those that they have care for and influence over. Grant them peace in times of great difficulty. I pray that you grant them great patience in having to bear with the various burdens that each one has. I pray, Father, that their kindness and goodness will be 
uh, on display that we might learn from them and their true faithfulness, the expression of feminine gentleness and their discipline and self-control. I pray that you would bless them. I pray that their role model would influence these little ones, particularly that are here growing up, and then others that are even outside, that they might also have a sincere faith that each child would confess Jesus Christ as Lord. I pray that their ministry of the excellency of who you are would be borne out in the generations to come, and may they all rise up and call them blessed. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. He'll make you stand in a minute, but I at least I got you seated. God bless you. I love each one of you. Amen. Well, let's take our hymn books and let's stand and turn to number 534, Take My Life and Let It Be. Consecrate yourself and be holy. Leviticus 27, 534. Fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Number 98, come thou fount of every blessing.
Good morning, everybody. Anybody else want to wish me good morning? Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Proverbs begins with the admonition, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, chapter 1, verse 7. It's the theme of the book. This morning, as we honor our mothers, the ones who nurtured us in our youth, our wives, and all godly women, The wisdom of Proverbs, as you will see, comes full circle. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised, chapter 31, verse 30. It's the perfect ending for the book of Proverbs. It shows us that the truth of the admonition is eternal. And is it not fitting that the conclusion concerns the person whom God chose to provide for and nurture us to model excellent character and Christ-likeness in the family. Today's scripture is Proverbs 30, and it's verses 10 through 31. The passage is found on page 552 in the Pew Bible, 552, if you'd like to follow along as I read in just a moment. Well, the special person we honor today is called a virtuous woman in the King James Version, a wife of noble character in the NIV, an excellent wife in the NASB and the ESV. And you'll note right off the bat that this virtuous, noble, excellent woman is hard to find. But when you do, this woman, this wife, has her husband's full confidence for she supports him in all his endeavors, as well as caring over and above for their home and their children. She's a hard worker, an industrious entrepreneur, a loving mother. She gives to the poor. She prepares clothes for her family and is subsequently honored by her husband, children, and and even the city fathers who see, if I might put it this way, they see the man that she has made. And that's not even the half of it. She's not only the engineer in the home, she's the engine. Her focus is on what she can do today, for what she does today prepares for a sure future for her home. Proverbs 31, beginning at verse 10. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. 
She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you, noble, excellent, virtuous woman, you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day that you have given to us. We thank you for life for breath, and for all things, for they come from your hand. We praise you that you are sovereign, and you give us peace, for we know that our lives and our times are in your loving hands. And I pray that your will may be done according to your sovereign plan for each one of your children this day. Father, we thank you for the women in our lives, godly women who are excellent and virtuous, who are hard to find until we realize that they are who they are because they love you. They hear your word. They put it to work in their lives. They change lives, and we praise you for them, our moms, our wives, the women who have nurtured us. Father, we thank you for the day that we can come together to hear your word, to worship together, to fellowship together. I pray that you bless the offering that is given this day. And I pray especially that you bless Brother Wayne as he comes to share the word of life with us from Hebrews. Uh, we just pray, Father, that through his preparation, through his presentation, backed by the love and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that we will be moved, we will be changed by your holy word. Show us your glory. Amen.
ladies, for complimenting us with your gifts. Thank you, Gordon, for reading the text and providing some background to it as well. What a great joy and privilege it is to worship Christ together. This morning we uh, begin a new book. I like to preach through a book most of the time, so we kind of know where we're going. And you can prepare, and we will cross-reference a lot of other places, so it isn't like we just remain there. Normally, when I finish up with a New Testament book, I like to at least put my toe in the water of the Old Testament. But this time I decided that I would choose the book of Hebrews because it does it for me. The book of Hebrews is an interesting book. And we're going to try this morning, the best I can, (coughs) to go through it from the beginning to the end. So we'll be here for a while. So buckle up, we'll go. I'll see what I can do. So there won't be a particular... text that we'll go to, but I think we'll at least get to the very beginning, and I think we'll get to the end, and maybe we'll hit a few points in between, if you're following along. I feel like in preparation for preaching through this book of trying to get a glass of water out of a fire hydrant, <laughs> and uh, it, it can be challenging, but we'll see what we can do. This particular book, the book of Hebrews, can be a very challenging and difficult book. It is familiar to most of us. I looked up and found some of the, well, the way they ordered it anyway, the top five memorable passages according to this statistical analysis. And you may have a few more that come to your mind. But an example from Hebrews would be 11.1. Speaking of faith, definition, it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Or how about the word of God itself in 4.12? It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and marrow, and discerning of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Number three is 12.1, speaking of godliness, therefore... Since we're surrounded by such great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us. 11.6 of Hebrews. And without faith it is impossible to please him. Whoever who would draw near to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The very beginning, really, is number five on this list, but it's number one on mine. We call it the prologue, or the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, and at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This book is more than a collection of great verses and great ideas, although there are great verses and great ideas here. 
know this. This particular book is God's inspired word. It is intended to reveal his glory through the ages, even today. God has spoken, and God speaks now through his holy word. Now, when I go to look at a book and begin to do a series on it, it's often helpful to get the background information. The human author, the immediate audience, the time or date it was written, any issues that are addressed in the book, to get a better idea of what's being communicated. Those factors, as we read a section like this, helps, to me anyway, like nonverbal communication, if you will, in di live dialogue, where, where you can see the gestures and expressions. Well, knowing some of this background just helps us understand the book a little bit better. But when we come to the book of Hebrews, there is, and it's a bit of an enigma, if you will, to some degree concerning the authorship, <coughs> the audience, and the occasion in which it's given. We can surmise pretty clearly that this was most likely written prior to the destruction of the temple by Titus in AD 70 because it addresses some of these practices in Jerusalem which seemed to be ongoing at the time this was written. Also, you can kind of surmise that this needs to be uh, an audience that is very familiar with all of that and hence this is a Jewish audience. If you read through the text, and, and you'll find it along the way as we preach through it, there seems to be at least three groups of people, of these mostly Jewish folks. One would be those who genuinely believe in Christ. That is, they have repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. There seems to be another group that is wavering in their faith and desiring to return back to these ongoing practices of Judaism, which were part of their cultural environment. And a third group who perhaps could care less at all, who were not regenerate. So you kind of have the, what I call the saved and the semi-saved and the unsaved. These seem to be the groups that are addressed here, and these it makes sense when you read along and you're going to find a number of warning passages which, taken by themselves, <coughs> can be pro problematic. But if you understand it in the, in the uh, bigger picture, it might be more helpful to understand what's going on. The authorship is, is a question that is disputed by many. Uh, Paul has a very, the Apostle Paul, has a strong tradition followed by perhaps Luke, Barnabas, and maybe Apollos, as well as some other lesser-known names. But I want to make this one point here to you as clearly as I can. The divine authorship is not in question. God wrote this book, and that's what actually matters. No prophecy, Peter would say, comes along by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We call this divine inspiration. God speaks, 
through the instrumentality of men, but it is ultimately through the Holy Spirit. Canonicity, how we put books in the Bible and how we recognize this, is a recognition that by the church that this is indeed an authoritative writing because it is self-evident, and time has proven that out. What is in question here, though, is not the divine authorship or the canonicity of this book. What is in question here is simply the human author. Whose pen was it that wrote this? And again, it can be helpful to know that because then it might help you understand other uh, aspects of what's being communicated. Uh, I quoted earlier from Timothy, right? First Timothy. Paul's talking to his protege, Timothy, and you can kind of understand uh, some nuance in what's going on. Or, or Titus, another uh, protege of Paul. Or the letter to the church at Rome. Well, you kind of know what's going on at Rome. Or the letter to the church at Corinth. You know, Paul's writing to that church, so you have the person and you have the occasion itself. Um, there is a question to this particular human author, Origen, a church father from the 3rd century, famously equipped, only God knows who wrote it, <laughs> and that is true, he does, but um, this literary um, theology in this literature uh, is, is similar to what the Apostle Paul might have taught or preached, but the phrasing and the way it's put together seems to be more like how somebody like Luke would have put something together. And so these are why these are the two leading candidates. In any case, the, the title or the direction in which this is going, uh, we use the letter to the Hebrews or just Hebrews in short. That comes from a um, manuscript in the second century. We call it P46 or Papyrus 46, a manuscript which just happened to use that as the title of this particular letter. This letter, however, if you read it from the beginning to the end, doesn't seem like a letter. There's no opening salutation like you might find in other letters, or we call them epistles, right, um, where the author would be identified, the audience would be identified, and sometimes even the occasion. Well, this book doesn't begin that way, does it? Not like a letter at all. And it ends, and see, this is how I get to the beginning and the end. Grant me here. It ends this way, and you can flip through because we're going through Hebrews. Chapter 13, verse 20. It ends um, with an epistolatory statement following at the final notes here. But prior to that, just stuck in there is, is a benediction of sorts in verse 20 of chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal com- covenant, equip you with everlasting, uh, with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen and then just kind of a subscript note that does read like uh, how epistle would would close 
this conclusion here in Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 is very similar to how we might conclude a service here after preaching. Jerry would typically give a benediction at the end of the service, and that is what this 13, 20 through 21 is. It's a benediction. Reading through this letter, which doesn't begin like a letter, doesn't sound like a letter throughout it, it's always struck me as, well, this looks much more like a sermon, an example of a sermon. I'm not alone on my conclusions, by the way, which is always helpful. You don't want to be unique in that. That is a common thought by many scholars who have studied this particular um, book of the Bible. Here's D.L. Allen in the New American Commentary. He puts it this way. Hebrews is one of the most important books in the New Testament for its contribution to nature, theology, and the practice of preaching. That, that's a key phrase there, practice of preaching. He says, it is itself a first-century sermon. I agree. I think that's what it is. I think that's what you're looking at. It's an exposition, he will conclude, of Psalm 110, which we might read here in a bit, and if not, be sure to note that and look at it. It's a biblical text-driven sermon. I think that's what you're seeing. Uh, they wouldn't have had the New Testament like I do, where I said, well, turn to the book of Hebrews. It wasn't written yet, right? Instead, it would, say, it would just quote from the scroll of Psalm 110, and then he's doing this exposition of Psalm 110 with a lot of cross-references. And that's a good way to preach, by the way. It's the way you'll hear it here, constantly referring back as the authoritative source other texts in Scripture and other ideas and concepts from Scripture. I'll go back to the quote from D.L. Allen. He would say it, it's an... <coughs> Its application to the church is drawn from the exposition of Old Testament text. That's what I'm saying, because that's what they had in the first century. Hebrews is an example of doctrinal preaching as well in, it, in that its author te teases out doctrinal insight from exegesis and application of Old Testament text. It's also an example of pastoral preaching that addresses the needs of the local church by, by satisfying exposition, exhortation, and encouragement. I agree. I, I think that's my analysis, too. You, the author and preacher of Hebrews describes this work, by the way, as a word of exhortation. You'll find that if you're still in 13, it verse 22, where he concludes this, I appeal to you, brothers. And, and so there it's helpful with the audience that the primary audience is the church. Jewish might they be at that time, but I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. So that's what it is, which I have written to you briefly. So they preach for a long time, too, by the way. It's a word of exhortation. That's what the author says. This word for exhortation, it, it means um, paraclesis. It means to, to come alongside and comfort and correct. 
like somebody would put their arm around somebody, right, and comfort them if they need a comfort or really gain their attention and, and cause for correction. This is what preaching is. This is what we do. And from what source and what authoritative source? From God's word. And that's what he's doing here. He's urging, and you can read that as you read through the book of Hebrews, and I hope I encourage you to do so in preparation for weeks to come. He urges people to live by faith. That's the reason for then that illustration that he gives from biblical references in chapter 11 when he goes on and on and on. And all of those people that live by faith are those that they have known. They have been faithful. Those who preceded, they, they believed in the promises of God. And the preacher of Hebrews then says, well, it, well it's for us to believe the promises of God. And, and it's all better for us in the church. You know why? Because they've all been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. How much better then for you to live by faith? He, he, will, he will base chapter 12, begin by, after talking about these people who live by faith, he says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now that'll preach, won't it? Yeah. Wouldn't you like to hear that sermon? Would you have it before you in the book of Hebrews? Jesus is king. He is the answer and the kingpin to all of scripture he, he is that missing puzzle piece that fits right in the middle and hence he becomes the focus of our preaching chapter 8 the preacher of hebrews will point to the whole point of it and that is christ i think this is a thematic statement chapter 8 and verse 1 now now the point is this you feel it the point is this well, this is what we're saying. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up and not man. It was God's sovereign work. Jesus, God, humbled himself, veiling his glory in human flesh. He then would be the only one who is the high priest, the, the mediator between God and man. He is high priest, but he's also sovereign king. He is sovereign king who has accomplished all by himself and not by men. He is enthroned in heaven, king of kings and lord of lords, and everyone will recognize him as such. You don't have to fully agree with every aspect of what I'm saying about this um, uh, being a sermon, but this is what I think. And as you study through it, see what you think about that. But listen how it begins. And we'll begin with this in Hebrews 1, verse 1. 
And this is written in such beautiful language. I want you to sense that as well. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than they. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would give us insight into your holy word. May we see Christ. May it be satisfying and sufficient to our souls to glorify you and to grow in grace and knowledge of you, that your name would be exalted above all. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I don't know if I've convinced you yet about this type of literature and the type of author in the sense that this is a preacher. <coughs> I do read this as a sermon, and, but rather than go in some exhaustive analysis just to demonstrate this, um, I, I just um, want to tell you that it isn't essential that you come to the same conclusion as I do on this. You can agree to disagree on the nature of the literature. However, this is where I'm coming from and how I'll move forward on it. I think it's um, helpful to understand the type of literature that you have before you because it's going to help you with the explanation of its content. If you think this is just a letter to some church, Hebrew church, perhaps in Jerusalem, that's fine. That won't make a substantial difference to the context, content, should I say, but I do think the context would help a little better if you understand this as preaching a sermon, and I will be preaching this as a sermon. I think it's also that idea explains why we don't have the certainty of the human author. Remember, the divine authorship is not in question. Our question is the human author. But it's obscured here. It's uncertain. I, it's unlike any other book which we have great tradition and um, a greater deal of certainty. I think this is, my explanation would be, this is either, th this is most likely the Apostle Paul's preaching. Certainly an exemplar of it and it's recorded by Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here, again, this is my analysis of it. Y this is not absolute. There will be things that I'll tell you that are absolute. This is just my idea of it, and maybe it will help you get a grasp of this book. The, the wording and phraseology of this particular book, Hebrews, is masterful, particularly in the original language. This reminds me very much of reading Spurgeon's sermons. Have you ever read Spurgeon's sermons? Here's what he had. He preached the word. We don't have audio of it. 
but he had stenographers on the front row, several of them, and they would record what he preached about. Then he would give, they would give him his note, their notes, and he would spend the day revising what they had taken down and crafting it in a written and literary form, and then it would be printed and published. I think that's what's going on here as well. The, the careful construction and precision notes a, a high literary form in the way this is, is documented here. And doing so can help because the dynamic of live preaching is lost. If you sat and recorded what I preach, which, which we do, and then transcribe it, it just doesn't come across as well as if it were corrected and crafted right. Occasionally, I'll, I'll, I'll misquote a reference. Maybe I'll stumble over a word or two in the dynamic of preaching. But when you hear it here, it, it sounds fine. But, and you hear it audibly. But if you looked at it written, <coughs> there are a few point, points that are a bit jumbled and maybe don't communicate as clearly as you might expect. I'll give you a, a test for that. Go, go read John MacArthur's sermons as opposed to listen to them and you'll see what I'm talking about. They do transcribe them directly, and um, it's not quite as dynamic as the audio might be. I think that God providentially obscured the preacher here because the preacher is not the primary focus. Christ is. That's the focus of preaching. It's Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sin. My anecdotes in preaching are not important. Christ is important. Illustrations are just that. They illustrate stuff. And one of the things I learned from MacArthur, and if you listen to him and this preacher here in Hebrews, they like to reference something from Scripture. It's okay to talk about normal life and our existence, and we'll do that from time to time, <coughs> and they do that from time to time, but the focus is on Scripture that Christ might be that which is exalted. My story and little anecdote is not important at all. If you walked away from a morning service and said, well, man, that preacher sure told a good joke, you know, um, I hope you forget all the jokes that I might say. And I don't joke much <laughs> anyway. But, but it's, you, and I've done that before. It's kind of sad. I've asked somebody, well, what, what did your pastor preach about? Oh, well, he talked about this story where he went fishing and his dog jumped in. And uh, You know what you need to hear? About Christ. He is the focus. And you don't have to hear about, well, wasn't that such an eloquent message given by someone with great rhetorical skills? No, you don't. You need to hear about Christ. And I think that's the emphasis here. Yeah, it's written well and recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that it can be communicated through the ages and have that same dynamic impact and is how God presented it here, but this preacher doesn't matter. What you need to hear is the preacher that is standing in the forefront 
and that would be Christ. Listen to him. This collection of brilliant theology then is recorded for us in great rhetoric to transcend the times. And just an example here in the beginning, he says, God has spoken, what, many times and, and many ways. Well, we don't read Greek, so we can't see the, the words that are behind it that are alliterated, polymerous and polutros. And by the way, if it was good enough for the Hebrew preacher to alliterate, it's good enough for us today, but I digress. He's, he's saying many portions or many parts at the beginning, and a number of these constructions are included in the, in the book of Hebrews. And, and what is going on in this skillful alliteration? The emphasis here that at the beginning that God spoke. <coughs> you understand theology. We wouldn't know about God unless he chose to reveal himself to us. We might know some things about God just by observation of creation, as Paul tells us in the book of Romans, or as the psalmist said, the heavens declare his glory day unto day. We, we would know something that he's powerful, he's creative, he's wise, he's intelligent in being able to make all these things work together. Maybe through our internal consciousness of right and wrong and morality and the sense that there is a life hereafter as Ecclesiastes which is another preacher, by the way, Solomon, he, uh, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, tells us he has put eternity in our heart. We would know these things. But, but what purpose is all of this? What, what is beyond the here and now? What, what about tomorrow and the next day? And, and why does all of this exist at all? Here's how we would know. It is through divine revelation, and that's why the preacher of the Hebrews begins that God spoke. He has spoken. He's spoken in the past, it says, through in, in different ways through our fathers by the prophets. This is the instrumentality by which God used to communicate divine truth. He had appointed men to speak the very word of God. But in these last days, verse 2, he's spoken by his son. The final word is... From the Son. And so the preacher then will go on to say how that is superior. And if you wanted a title for it, it, this book really might be The Supremacy of Jesus Christ our Lord, who is indeed, as he would say, verse 3, he's at the right hand of the majesty on high, and then he says he became superior. See, it's talking about the superiority of Jesus Christ. And then as a quick overview for the whole book, (coughs) he'll say, and I'll give you some examples here in in the flow of this sermon. In the first couple of chapters, he emphasizes he's better than angels. And that might not mean a lot to you, but it meant a lot to them. We'll get to the background and explain that. But the point is, he's better. Then he says he's better than Moses in chapter 3. Moses would have been an an important prophet to them, an important prophet today. The first five books we call the Pentateuch comes from Moses. (coughs) Christ is better. Christ is better than the Sabbath, as important that might be in chapter 4. 
He's better than this priesthood, which was really integral to all that they were doing. And, and that's a big statement, particularly for Jewish Christians. It's a better priesthood, chapter 4, all the way through 7. And then this whole ministry that Christ has and he's given to those that are in Christ is better than this old covenant here in chapters 8 through 10. In the last section here, chapter 11 through 13, then he focuses on the encouragement of a better hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In addition to then all of the Old Testament passages, which he then must point to in his cross-references, demonstrating that all of this is, the, the Christ is better than all that came before, it, it's really an exegesis, I would say, of Psalm 110. And if you wish to turn there, you can. <coughs> um, I'll read it for you otherwise. Because if you have that in your mind, as you read the book of Hebrews, you will see uh, how that's either referenced directly or alluded to from time to time. So it's helpful as a companion to know the reference in which this sermon derives. Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments from the womb of the morning, and the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand, and he will shatter kings on this day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with the corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. If you don't see this connection, we'll refer back to it from time to time, but I assure you, hold that in your mind, and it will help you understand the book of Hebrews as you go through it. Jesus appealed to this very passage, if you remember, when the uh, Pharisees were challenging him in Matthew 22, and Jesus asks them about this particular passage. He says to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And the response of the Pharisees at that was they weren't able to answer. Nor from that day did they dare ask him any more questions. You know why they didn't answer? It's the same reason a Supreme Court justice nominee didn't want to answer the question about what is a woman. These Pharisees didn't want to answer the question because they were looking at Christ in the face. He would have to be a human born in flesh. They didn't want to go there and talk about his human sonship and that he would also have a divine sonship. Both are true, doctrinally true, and this is what the author, the, the preacher of Hebrews, if you will, is driving at. To answer this question, you have to recognize when you read Psalm 110 that this Christ, 
the Messiah would have to have a human nature and a divine nature. There is only one person who ever could, did, and will fulfill that criteria. His name is Jesus. Do you know him? He's the topic of this sermon. In addition to his nature, the preacher of Hebrews preaching Christ from the Old Testament, and you can find it here in Psalm 110 as well, he will also talk about not only his nature being human and divine, but also his offices that we, he will hold as God's anointed. Three offices, his prophets, him as a prophet, him as a priest, and him as a king. He spoke, if you will, in the text, by his son. That's the, that's the better prophecy. That, that is better in the sense of the fulfillment of it all. As a priest, he says here that he made purification for sin. As a king, he is what? Sitting on the majesty on high. These themes of prophet, priest, and king will be woven through the text of Hebrews because it's woven through the text of Scripture. Remember when Jesus uh, talked to those men on the road to Emmaus? He, he began with Moses and started showing them from the very beginning that all these things spoke of what? Christ. That he, he is the object of it all. He is the subject of it all. This doctrinal content then is going to set forth the basis. This is why it's important to know this, of who Christ is from Psalm 110. It's the basis then for that exhortation of correction and comfort. Both are true, but how are you going to receive this word of exhortation? You're going to need to see Christ for who he is. So there is great doctrinal truth that's stressed over and over and over. And does it have an absolute practical um, uh, emphasis? Yes, it does. It's the basis of your exhortation. This is what we do when we preach. As Paul would tell his protege, Timothy, preach the word. All the time. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. It's real simple. Explain the doctrine and exhort the doctrine. The application comes from the truth. There are many exhortations in the, in the um, Sermon of Hebrews. And one example of an exhortation is a warning. After you preach doctrine, in a pastoral presentation, you would also provide a warning. And you're going to find five key warning passages throughout this sermon as he continues to warn the people. Remember the audience, he's talking about those who are truly regenerate, those that think that they're regenerate, and those who could care less. This message is for all. Chapter 2. Chapter 2, he warns them, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. See how it would apply to all three? Pay attention to what's being said. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? <coughs> there, there's no other salvation. A great warning of ex, exhortation of warning. Chapter 3, 
verse 7. Therefore, he, he's concluding with a word of exhortation. The Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice. Can, can you hear the words of the preacher? Hear it now. Young people, hear the word of exhortation. For, for, for those that are in Christ, continue. And he'll, he'll talk about that in a minute. I'll, I'm getting ahead. But, but, but also a great warning. Don't harden your hearts like the day of rebellion. And he, and he points back to an Old Testament reference to, to demonstrate what rebellion is like. It's a day of testing in the wilderness. But instead, down to verse 13 in chapter 3, exhort one another every day as long as it is today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You want to know what to pray for? You can pray for that, for yourself and for others. Verse, well, let me move on so I don't run out of time. Chapter 5, I want to preach all of this. Chapter 5, verse, beginning of verse 11, but I'll slip down to chapter 6 in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works towards faith in God. Verse 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the same full assurance of hope until the end, so that you might not be sluggish, but imitators of those who have faith through faith and patience, inherit the promises. He's going to tell you about that group in chapter 11. But here he's exhorting them to go on to spiritual maturity. Another warning passage, in, you can find it in chapter 10 and verse 19. And I'll drop down to verse 22 from that section. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us, verse 23, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who has promised is faithful. Who promised it? It is Christ. He's faithful. Don't neglect, verse 25, then to, to meet Together And here's the warning, verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. You, you, you can't live in a continually unrepentant state and be a regenerate Christian. You, you can think you are. And so here he's examining to hold fast the confession and don't continue in deliberate sin. Verse 35, don't throw away your confidence. Hear it? Verse 39, we're not those who shrink back and are destroyed. So he's preaching primarily to the brothers in Christ, but also calling them to examine themselves. Chapter 12, another warning passage, final in this five section, if I've gone through them all. 
If I miss one, don't worry, we'll be back. Warning passage, verse 14 of chapter 12. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many may become defiled. He'll go on to explain what that means, but it is a word of exhortation. There's also words of great encouragement here, too, to Christians, to those that are in Christ. Some of them, I'll give you an overview. We're taking a tour through Hebrews, see? Go back to chapter 4. And I alluded to this already, mixed in the exhortation of warning. (coughs) He also provides some encouragement, verse 14. And what is our encouragement? It is Christ. He is our mediator. He is our great high priest. He's already passed through the heavens, verse 14. That is, he is enthroned on the throne of God. Jesus, the Son of God, that, that is his speaking of his divinity. Because of that, let us hold fast our confession. That, that's the motivating force for you to continue in faith. Chapter 6 and verse 12. It's an encouragement not to be sluggish, as it says, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And an example, of course, is Abraham (coughs) patiently waiting for the promises to be fulfilled. All the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. They have been fulfilled in Christ. It's so much better. And that's the encouragement. As I said in 1023, hold fast the confession of our hope, 1023, without wavering and stir up one another. 1036, it's a call for endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And as I mentioned earlier in chapter 12, Conclusion of the faith, chapter of 11, following that, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight of sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the rate that is before us. Great encouragement. That's not all. Those are just some examples of it. Finally, I'll conclude with this from chapter 13, the last chapter. As he rounds out this doctrinal sermon that provides great truth about who Jesus Christ is and why he is better than everything else. And as he warns them that that there's no other way but Christ, as he encourages the people to continue in Christ, he'll end up having his focus on exemplifying Christ and an encouragement to God's people to do that very thing. And this chapter 13 kind of rounds that out as a conclusion. He would say then, verse 1 of chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. How did it begin? 
the love of God in Christ Jesus in your heart. Th that's how it began. And so then let that kind of love, the love of Christ, continue in, in your life. It's a great encouragement to exemplify Christ. A and then he picks out some, a bunch of examples of it, hospitality to strangers, uh, caring for those that are uh, in prison and so forth, <coughs> to find, to remember your, your leaders, and don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, verse 9. Drop down to verse um, 16. Don't neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And then obey those that God has put in your life as leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us that we are sure that we would have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. And then hear, hear this phrase, urge. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I might be restored to you sooner, that he might come and see this. But, but there's an urgency to all of that, and that's how he concludes and this mighty benediction, verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever and God's people said, Amen. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that Christ would be exalted, that we would understand continually and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. May it be expressed as um, great encouragement to each of us to hold fast this confession of faith and to look for that soon appearing of Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, let me give you a moment privately where you're at to think on these things and respond directly to Christ as he has spoken to you. Take a moment now. Father, I do pray that you would turn our hearts to Christ. May he be the focus of our attention all day long. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You shouldn't be playing songs that I like. I can't stop it. <laughs>
So you girls, I'm going to mess you up too because you've got your instruments, but I think you're talented, right? What's turn your eyes on Jesus? What? Four, one, three. We're playing an audible here. By divine providence. So we say, think. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Y'all want to sing that? Let's stand together as Jerry comes to lead us. Four, one, three. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Father, we pray that you'd make your face to shine upon your servant and teach us your statues. Rivers of water run down my eyes because they keep not thy law. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Thy testimonies thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. Father, we pray you would bless us now as we go our ways. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.